0: Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It is wonderful to see you all. If you're new, as I mentioned earlier, my name is Jamie, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, the book of Galatians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one under the chair in front of you. And if you're not real familiar with the Bible, Galatians is towards the back You'll find it on page 973, Galatians chapter 3. Um, if, and by the way, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible at home, go ahead and just take that one home with you. That is this congregation's gift to you. And uh, we are going to work our way through uh, to, from verse 19 down to 25, Galatians 3, 19 to 25. I'm going to read the passage and then pray. And then we'll get to work in Galatians 3. I'll have three points to draw from the text this morning. In total, it should, should take around 40 minutes or so as we work our way through this. So, Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. Why then the law? was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary." Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, well, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's pray. May grace and peace be multiplied to us this morning in the reading of Your Word as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. May it increase in us faithfulness and an ever-deepening joy in the Lord. We thank You, Father, for the rain a reminder of our creatureliness, of how dependent we are upon things we cannot control and how You, our Father in heaven, are our great provider. Would You provide for us again a meal here in the text, and allow us to see with eyes anew Your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Laws only apply to the living. Dead, pre- dead people break no laws. You might believe in ghosts and zombies, but it's really hard to get them to appear at trial, no matter what they've done. And you might think of that as a silly thing to say, but the Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 7. He said, "'The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives.'" It seems a rather obvious thing to say because laws don't apply to dead people. And so, Paul goes on and gives an example. He says, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. I'll give you a modern example. You're only obligated to return that movie you rented from Blockbuster, as long as Blockbuster is still in business. But if Blockbuster goes belly up, which they have, you're off the hook. Although I have heard that there is one remaining Blockbuster somewhere in Oregon. So, if you have a movie from Blockbuster, you may want to look into that. They're going to want the VCR take back. Laws only apply to the living. That's what Paul is saying a widow is free to remarry if she wants. She's not committing adultery because her husband is dead. That's what Paul's saying. But if you keep reading Romans 7, you find out that he's not actually talking about widowhood. His point there in Romans 7 is that we were married to the law. We were married to the law. It wasn't a good marriage. It was abusive. There were cold, demanding rules which had to be kept for us to earn our husband's favor. That you were bound, enslaved, trapped in a marriage with no hope of escape. It was joyless. It was loveless, it was pins and needles. But Paul writes, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. And that's Paul's point in Romans 7 that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you died to the law, you've been set free from that abusive marriage, and you've been joined to another, to Jesus Christ. And this marriage is nothing like the first, it's everything the first wasn't. It's warm, it's free. It's full of joy. The Apostle John calls it grace upon grace. Our new husband is patient and kind and infinitely merciful, and he is madly in love with us, and we are madly in love with him. Now, of course, there are rules in this marriage as there is in any healthy relationship, because of who he is and because of the way he is with us we love keeping his rules. This new marriage is wonderful. And yet, yet despite how wonderful our new husband is, there are vestiges of that old marriage that still haunt us. Puritan Thomas Boston wrote of the ghost of a dead husband. There are times even in this new marriage of grace that we treat our new husband as if he acted like our old one. We act like the favor of God has to be earned by us by keeping rules, that that God's love for us has to be wrestled out of His hands by our numb obedience to His laws. The memory of our first husband returns to us often with a sense that we will never be attractive to our new husband unless we perfectly keep His rules and we are tormented by nightmares of that abusive relationship. We wake some mornings under a heavy fog of condemnation. We forget our Savior and His free grace. The world turns gray. We cry to the law for mercy, but the law has no mercy. As we approach the end of Galatians chapter 3, Paul has been explaining to the Galatian church why it is so important to understand and to maintain a right view of God's law. He has shown us that no one is made right with God by keeping the law of God. And the problem, as we have seen so far, is not with God's law. The problem is with us, with our ability to keep God's law. A wrong view of God's law leads to distortion of the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, it leads to a distortion of the character and nature of God Himself. God's favor cannot be earned by keeping the law, right? Standing with God It's not something we earn, it is a gift to be received by faith in Jesus Christ. And this happens apart from the law. Paul said in Galatians 2, in Christ, we died to the law so that we might live to God. In Christ, that haunting voice of the law is silent the memory of that abusive relationship is long forgotten. So why then the law? Why give the law? That's a natural question to which we turn. In Galatians 3, 19 to 25, Paul gives three purposes for God's law. And those three purposes will serve as our outline this morning. Number one, the law humbles the arrogant. The law humbles the arrogant. Number two, the law imprisons the sinner. The law imprisons the sinner. And number three, the law drives us to Christ. The law drives us to Christ. First point, the law Humbles the arrogant. You see this in verse 24 and 25. Let's, um, or I'm sorry, verses um, 19 and 20. Let's read that again. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. And so, if living under the law was like being married to an abusive husband, the question we should ask then is, why then the law? Why would God give the law? It's a good question, and we need to know the answer to that question. Because as I stated earlier, a misunderstanding of the law leads to a misuse of of the law, and that leads to all kinds of distortions. If you miss the point of the law, you will miss the glory of the gospel. This was the problem in Israel. Paul told the Romans in Romans 9 that Israel pursued the law as a means to righteousness, but they never obtained righteousness. And he explains because they never obtained it, they never pursued it by faith. So, if we misunderstand the law, we will misuse the law, and that turns deadly. So, why then the law? Paul says here in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. The law exposes sin. How would we know what sin is and what a danger sin is unless... The law told us. And so the law serves to diagnose our condition as God points out our problem, our sin. And we humans, we are arrogant creatures. We cannot see ourselves as we truly are. We can't see ourselves from above us or from behind us because God put our eyes in the front of us. That's why those kick me signs in elementary school work so well. You can't see behind you. I'll give you an illustration from my own life. When I was in my late 20s, I was walking into Kroger, and I happened to look up and see the security monitor up in the, above me, and it was at that moment that I realized, seeing myself from above, I was balding in a strip right down the middle of my head. My <laughs> it is your fault. <laughs> so I went home, cursed my genetics, and buzzed my head because I was, I was balding the whole time. I just couldn't see it because you can't see yourself. From above, you need help. God's law, His view from above, sees into us and sees us as we truly are. And it's worse than we think. So we think, oh, I I know I can be strict and, and demanding because... Well, I prefer order and God is a god of order. And the law says, that's not the reason. You're strict and demanding because you want to be God. You want everyone to worship you like they worship him. And we think to ourselves, well, I look, I fly off the handle sometimes, who doesn't? Because I'm a very passionate person. And the law says, that's not the reason. The reason is you're arrogant. And you hate that others don't love you as much as you love you. We believe ourselves to be better than we truly are, and God's law comes and humbles us. Shows us that what we thought in our life was just good insight is actually haughtiness, and God hates haughtiness. That what we thought in our life was just good financial planning was actually greed, and God hates greed. Because even when we thought we were doing good, the law comes along to show us that even the good things we did was filthy, self-righteous rags. Isn't this what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you boast, dear man, that you haven't cheated on your spouse? But I tell you that anyone who looks with a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you boast because you haven't suffered the punishment of murder? Well, but I tell you anybody who's angry with his brother is liable to that same punishment. Do you think that you're teaching her a lesson by giving her the cold shoulder? Well, I tell you that if you don't forgive her, I ain't forgiving you. The law comes to dismantle our pride, to strip us naked, and to humble our arrogance. It is meant to show our transgressions so that we would seek the mercy of God. John Calvin wrote, the law was added because of man's pride and arrogance that We might humbly seek the mercy that is offered us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that through Him we might be enabled to receive and enjoy His forgiveness. Because after all, you don't take medicine until you know you're sick. And the law was sent to diagnose our sickness, and the law was meant to lead us to the cure to the one that Paul calls the offspring who should come, the one to whom the promise had been made, Jesus Christ, the great physician. The end of verse 19 and all of verse 20 is confusing. And honestly, I am not sure how it's connected in Paul's mind. i banged my head against this this week, and worked on it, and I'm still not sure. The best, best as I can tell, Paul seems to be drawing a contrast between the law and the gospel. The law was put in place through angels, whereas the gospel was put in place through God the Son. The intermediary here is probably a reference to Moses, a mediator is a go-between. When God gave the law, He gave it to Moses, and Moses gave it to the people but when God gave us the gospel, it was God who related to His people Himself directly in God the Son. That's the best I got. So, you'll have to dig into that passage yourself. If you can make better sense of it, please let me know. So, the law is given to humble the arrogant, and in the law, we see our sin. But that's not all that the law does. Paul goes on, because we're not only sinners, We're also prisoners. Let's pick up reading verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Last Sunday, we saw that promise and law are not the same, that if I make a promise to you, but then I make you work for it, then you're not actually receiving a promise, you're receiving a wage. God has promised His people life, and then He gave them the law. So, Paul's asking, is the law then contrary to the promise? And Paul's answer is, certainly not. Why isn't it contrary to promise? And the answer is because the law was not to make people righteous and to give them life because if it could then it would but it hasn't so it, it didn't it can't so so back to the marriage illustration it's like the abused the abused wife trying to earn favor from her merciless husband by keeping his impossible rules no matter how many rules she keeps she'll never keep them well enough. She'll never earn His love. It's impossible. She's a prisoner. Which is what verse twenty-two says, but the Scripture, a synonym for the law, imprisoned everything under sin. So, not only does the law show us our sin, it shows us how incapable we are of doing anything about it. We're trapped. John Piper explains this problem well. The law imprisons us. He says, "Because it requires proud and independent people to humble themselves and depend on God's transforming mercy," End quote." I think that's right. Proud, independent people cannot change. They're slaves. Because in order to change, you must first recognize that you need to change. But pride blinds our eyes from seeing a need of change, and therefore, we'll never change. And so, God gives His law to crush satanic pride like a hammer on stone so that we will call for the mercy of God. So the point of the law is, one, to prove we are sinners, to prove our guilt, and two, to lock us up. I mean, after all, God did say, do this and live. And the law comes and proves we have not done this and therefore we will not live. Do you remember what Jesus told the Laodicean church? He told the Laodicean church, Y'all you think you're doing well. You think you're rich. You think you need nothing. But in reality, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, naked, and blind. Friends, we are far worse off than we ever imagined. And contrary to how we feel, my fellow Americans, we are not free. Not in this sense. Without Christ, we are prisoners. Just consider what the Lord Jesus said. The law can be summed up in two commandments. The whole law is summed up in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Love your neighbor as yourself." Just forget about the first one. Just just think about the second one. Has anyone ever loved someone else as much as they love themselves? Like, who wants to take that exam? What if the first question is, let's see your bank statement. (laughs) Let's see how, according to your bank statement, you have loved others more than you love yourself. We're a mess. And outside of Christ, we are trapped in sin. Why would God do this? Why show us our sin and then show us how incapable we are of doing anything about our sin? Well, you know the answer. It's right there in verse 22. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those to believe. The law proved our guilt, sin locked us in prison, and we realize because of this, there's only one way out of this prison cell. We're going to have to be sprung out. Someone else is going to have to come and set me free. Someone else is going to have to come and to earn God's blessing in my place if I have any hope of receiving that blessing. So if I ever do get free, if I ever do receive the blessing of God's righteousness, it will never be on my own account because I'm guilty and I'm stuck here in this prison. I don't need to do better. I need to be rescued. And so at the end of the day, when this whole thing wraps up, There will be only one person standing on the podium, and the whole universe with eternal eyes will be able to see and say that this salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and therefore must be to the glory of God alone so that no man can boast, so that only God deserves the credit. Before faith came, we were held captive here in this dark cell. But God did not leave, this, leave us in that dark cell. He shone His light into that dark cell. Cornerstone, let the law have its place. Let the law crush satanic pride in your life. And God in His mercy will heal your blindness and you will see with the eyes of faith the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We would never turn to Jesus Christ as our Savior until we know we need to be saved. We would never look to Jesus as our deliverer until we recognize that we need to be delivered. We would never plead with God for healing until we know that we're sick. The law came so that we might cherish the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's thank God for His law. Let's thank Him for that dark, damp cell of our prison. Because having been set free from that prison, we are able to rightly enjoy the bright, clean air of freedom. After all, Jesus said in Luke 7, he who is forgiven little loves little. And friends, so long as you believe yourself to be pretty good, you will never understand how truly good God is. You'll just see God as a, a slightly better version of yourself, but not as your Savior and most certainly not as your Lord." And this is the point that Paul makes next, that the law was given to lead us to Christ. This is my third point, the law drives us to Christ, which we see in verses 24 and 25. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. The law was our guardian, Paul says. The word for guardian here, it doesn't really have an English equivalent. It refers to a slave who was especially appointed to the care of children. In wealthy Greek families, children were under the supervision of slaves whose job it was to chaperone them to school, to discipline them when necessary. And so these guardians would feed the children, they would clothe the children, and, and they would accompany the children to school to make sure that they got there. The guardian would make sure the child didn't wander off the path. And when when the child did wander off the path, it was the guardian's job to discipline the child. Ancient depictions of guardians are seen holding rods and, and canes. Once the child arrived at school, the guardian would wait in a special room until the lesson for that day was done. The guardian played an important role in the development of the child. And then once the child came of age, and the child no longer needed a guardian with a cane to keep them on the straight path, because the reality of what they should do was then written on their heart, the guardian was no longer needed. Once the child came of age, once they learned They no longer needed the guardian. And so Paul says the law is our guardian until Christ came. The law drives us to Christ. Showed our sin, showed how incapable we are of doing anything about it, and turned our eyes upon the only one who has done something about it. The law was meant to demolish any faith, we had in ourselves so that we would have no other option except to trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 20 and 21. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The law by itself cannot save. It was never meant to. It was meant to lead us to the one who does save. This is what the Galatian church had been getting wrong They thought that by keeping God's law that they would receive God's promised blessing and earn eternal life, and this was impossible. This was a misunderstanding of the law. It was a misuse of the law, and therefore it could not give them life. It kept them from life. It kept them from seeing Christ who is life, who is the point of the law. So do you see why we need God's law? Do you see why we need to preach God's law? Do you see why we need to call sin, sin? Because without the diagnosis, there will be no looking for the remedy. Without understanding the problem, we will never look for the right solution. But what do we do? Well you can see what we do in our day. It's all over. We misdiagnose the problem of sin. And so, we never find the solution. Repentance becomes therapy. And therapy might have some effect of changing behavior, but therapy cannot change the heart. Only the gospel changes the heart. And so if we don't point to sin, we'll never see the gospel, we'll never see the solution, hearts will remain unchanged. Behaviors might be adjusted, but hearts will will remain unchanged, and we're just patting people on the back and sending them to an eternity under God's judgment. Dr. Al Mohler explains the modern approach to our problems very well, I think. He says, we think that we have external problems, and so we look for an internal solution but the Bible teaches that we have an internal problem with an external solution. But I get it. People don't want to hear sermons about sin. They don't want to hear that greed is sin, that pride is sin. People don't want to hear about sexual purity, submission to authority. Our appetites are for... Motivational speeches, pats on the back, people who tell us how good we are and how turns out God wants all the same things from your life, what is what you want from your life. We want someone to come along and offer us a couple of clever life hacks and, and send us on the way. I get it. But if we remain blind to our true problem, our sin against the holy God, we'll be like the Laodiceans. We'll think that we're rich and doing well, and we don't need anything. But in reality, we are wretched, poor, pitiable, naked, blind. And so, friend, the most loving thing you can do for your neighbor is to expose sin so that you can point to Christ. maybe you've already turned me off. Maybe you came to church hoping for a pick-me-up 10 ways that you can be the best you that you can be. That's not wrong. It's not wrong to want to be the best you that you can be. It's just You will never be the best you that you can be by staring at yourself in the mirror. You have to take your eyes off of yourself and put them on Jesus Christ. After all, it's Him. He is the one who made you. Don't you think He knows how you work best? You've made a mess of your life. But by turning to Him, He'll clean you up but you've got to first admit you have a problem. More than that, you have to first admit you are the problem. And Jesus is the solution. So if you're not a Christian, may I plead with you, turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ today and receive the free gift of eternal life. Take one of those Bibles under the chair in front of you, and find someone who looks like a regular, and meet with them regularly, and read it together. And I think what you'll find is that you're far worse off than you ever thought you were, but God is far more loving than you ever imagined. John Stott said, "'It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky.'" that the stars begin to appear, and it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. The law humbles the arrogant, the law imprisons the sinner, and the law drives us to Christ. This week, when the ghost of that dead husband haunts the halls of your mind, remind him that he is dead, that that marriage is over. You got a new man now, and his love is free, and this marriage is full of joy, and it is full of laughter, and he's madly in love with you, and you're madly in love with him. And then give yourself to him fully. Freely, making much of Him this week by keeping His commandments in great joy all to the glory of God, because after all, that's the point of the law. Amen? Let's pray. Father, You are the great I Am the one who is, the one who was, and the one who will always be, you will never change. You do not evolve or mature or grow. You are infinite. You are perfect. Lord, will you forgive us, your people, for our arrogance, for believing ourselves to be better than we actually are. Forgive us for haughty eyes, for lying tongues. Forgive us for treating others like we were better than them. Lord, forgive us for acting like we're better than non-Christians. Lord, our pride is such a wicked thing a cancer that has taken root in our life. Have mercy on us. And in your infinite kindness through Jesus, have mercy and bring help. Will you grant that as the truth of this gospel hits our hearts, it will explode out of our lives into rich, fruitful, selflessness, and humility. May an ever-increasing joyfulness spring from our life as we decrease and Jesus increases. Will you send your Holy Spirit to do this work in us, to make us more like Christ, living, under the favor of God, freely given, never earned, as we serve, as we give our whole selves to Him and to His church. Send us into the world this week with the preciousness of this message of God's grace. Amen. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Your assurance of pardon comes this week from Psalm 116, verse 5, where we read, Gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful.